Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Coming in, we are on day two of Future of Supply Chain. It's been a great conference so far. We have a very special guest here, Michael Schrag, research fellow at MIT Sloan. Sloan School. Sloan School. Initiative on the Digital Economy. Yes. 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 So you've been here since yesterday. Yeah. You flew in yesterday. Yeah. You're taking in the supply chain. You're taking in the conference. You're taking in the technology. What are your thoughts so far? Well, first and foremost, I'm really impressed by the people and variety and dynamism of, of what I've heard. Um, between what's going on worldwide, China, Ukraine, uh, the, the global issue, the technology disruptions that we're hearing, the, the supply chain sector is going to be a much more dynamic and indeed volatile sector than I would have thought. And, you know, we have all manner of supply chain initiatives, study initiatives at MIT. So this is a, a very impressive array of things going on. That said, I'm also surprised by the kind of things I'm not hearing. You know, I would have thought that with the great resignation and all manner of turnover, I would have thought there'd be more discussion of, you know, how do we retain drivers? How do we train them? How do we onboard them? Uh, software is playing a bigger role. Analytics is playing a bigger role. How should our systems be architected? Not just what kind of problems do we need to solve in the next 90 to 120 days? So it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. I've learned a lot and I look forward to learning more. You, you were talking backstage just a second ago and I'll use the cliche, sure. you know, Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. Don't, don't so, skate sorry. to it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'll take the, the fault for that, yeah. right? Don't skate to where the puck is, where the puck is going to be. Right. So, and, and that's in a quickly changing market, quickly changing technology and needs. That is so important of looking out beyond well, what we've seen during the pandemic we, in a post pandemic world. Right. We, we, we heard from the gentleman at PetSmart you know, that it's no longer enough to have a plan B. You need a C, D, and E kind of plan. And, you know, it's interesting to me about the debate about to what extent are the systems that people are buying, procuring, and were demoed here, are they point solutions versus something that really allow you to become more visible, more agile, more flexible 12 to 18 months ago? Uh, from now. So, so I, I'm really curious about that. And, and the word that I want to double down on is architecture. How do we want to architect visibility? How do we want to architect transparency? How do we want to architect agility? And, you know, I have the bias being a quasi-academic, but I also run exec ed programs and I advise a number of organizations, and these are the kinds of issues. I'll just offer one small example. There was a lot of discussion about visibility, the importance of visibility in your track and, and on, the, on the main stage here. Uh, what are your visibility roadmaps? What is your roadmap for visibility? What kind, of, what kind of way can you aid your clients or your customers' visibility roadmap? Are you having conversations about what visibility means at the end of 2023 rather than just for the next three to six months? Yeah, visibility really has a, a lot of different terms and definitions. Right. It means it's abstract, right? It means a I lot know. of different things to different people as, as you fit it into... 
it's, a value proposition or you have a conversation with your, your customers. It's not that it's abstract. It's made tangible or intangible in the use cases mm -hmm. that you pick. And what are the use cases where visibility matters more? Where does it become a differentiator versus you have to have it so it's, it's, it's not a differentiator? <clears throat> I'm a smidgen surprised that those kinds of conversations weren't elaborated on in, in the demo. Why in particular? Because clearly, I mean, there's a great schizophrenia in this, which that, I've, that I'm inferring from what I've heard, that there are people who just want the answer. Give me, I want to, to book the, the transportation. Just book it for me. You know, the, the best, give me the optimal answer. Mm -hmm. And what I increasingly see and what we heard again, you know, plan A, B, C, D, or E, what are the trade-offs? Not what is the best answer. What are my best choices? And I really do wonder to what extent supply the supply chain of the future is going to leverage visibility around digital twins, visibility around simulation, visibility around modeling to make on a risk-adjusted basis better decisions about shipping, supply chain management, and risk. Can you go a little bit deeper into best choices and best answers and kind of sure. differentiate those two and, and lay those out for us? So at risk of sounding self-serving, one of my favorite risks to take, I wrote a book on recommendation engines, okay? I would be intrigued by, because we're getting all of this data. I mean, Amazon makes recommendations about, about what you should buy. Spotify and Netflix make recommendations about what you should listen to or view. What kind of things are we going to see in terms of recommendations on the way you should book, on the way you should ship, on the way if something goes wrong, what are your next best actions? What are, what's your, not what is your default option, what are the two or three best default options given X, given, given Y? And this, you know, I have a fairly decent background in computer science and economics. I would argue that in things like operations research, optimization is the original sin because we're always looking to what's the optimal answer? What's the best answer? But what does everybody in the world live in, in a post-COVID world understand? It, our choices are pretty bad most of the time. What's the least worst choice? Mm -hmm. can, can, it, it's, it's sometimes foolish to ask what the optimal choice is. So my view is how can we architect the best choices rather than the best answer? Because as everybody in this room has lived through, when the best answer isn't available, what the F do you do? <laughs> You're exactly right. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. And so we're really machine learning, but AI. Do, way, really what do you do is, yeah. is the people in the, that's well, the yeah. job of the people in the, you know, I, 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 my family doesn't eat if the people in this room don't do their jobs. I mean, so this is, these are non-trivial kind of issues. The, the, the flip side is, I'm wondering how much of this is scrambling and improvisation versus really taking advantage of data and analytic tools and digitalization to manage risk and manage opportunity better. Well, as a, uh, a former freight broker ah. in transportation, it is scrambling. Okay. It's scrambling and putting your head under the desk right. most of the time okay. rather than optimal. Is because there a laptop on the desk? That's okay. <laughs> it's exactly right. It's exactly right because sometimes you don't, well, oftentimes you, you might not know your best choices if you don't have the right data, number one. Right. And number two, you have a time crunch on there, so you just do something right. for the sake of 
doing something, and we all know but, but, if you do that, it's probably not a very good outcome. But look at what you've done. You've now identified the constraints. It's not just, quote-unquote, optimized best choices. It's best choices within time constraints, within budget constraints, within approved provider constraints. I'll give you, and, and you know, do you have the right data available? So when the pandemic kicked in, forgive me for telling you this story, but it's, it has the virtue of being true. When the pandemic kicked in, I didn't hear anything from anybody in my usual clients for like two weeks, three weeks. Then the calls I began to get would be ironically, perversely from supply chain, which is not my expertise, but mm -hmm. it's on analytics, digital kind of stuff. And, you know, we worked on various problems. But the stuff I, I, I was exposed to, I just didn't believe, you know, because I'm listening to, you know, well, what, do you have the data for this? And one of the things that I found out from, again, buy a sample here that I'm listening to these supply chain people is that what about this, you know, these components, these units? And they had no visibility into it because procurement had negotiated something and procurement just gave like an SKU number. Procurement gave no visibility into the properties of the things, where they were from, etc. It was just over the wall kind of things. And so I really discovered, it, it, there were some groups, by the way, where, where the supply chain people ended up hating procurement even more and vice versa, and other organizations where they became collaborative in ways they literally would have rejected six months before the pandemic began. And we're going to talk about this here in a second is outside collaboration. Right. But you just brought up a great point about inside collaboration. And, and a lot of times inside a single company, there isn't all that much communication or flow through or communication enough to convey information when things go south. Right. Well, you know, and, and then, of course, you scramble. And the only time you get together is when something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. Gee, what better way to build a healthy culture than meeting when things are going <laughs> wrong? Um, yes, there are too many organizations that have too many silos. <clears throat> And this is where the digital transformation and digital architecture stuff, and I'm picking the A word deliberately in this regard, matter so much. We heard many of the demo people reference APIs, application programming interfaces. The issue is not better integration. The issue is how do we create architectures of interoperability where because of an API, I am able to, I have permission to scan this kind of data or run this kind of analytics on the data, not suck out all the data or repurpose all the data, but given certain kinds of use cases, recovery, resilience, prediction, anticipation, various silos have rights to data. And based on the analytics they perform, they share that analytics is that, you know, we should really consider doing the shipment this way. We should, if we ask for a day delay, we can improve the outcome this percent. Those are the, what kind of conversations, what kind of collaborations do you want to facilitate within the organization? To my mind, one of the failures I have seen, and not just on the supply chain side, but so many organizations doing quote unquote digital transformation and go to cloud, is that you take these unbelievably dysfunctional, unbelievably siloed systems and you digitize it. So you recreate all of your pathology and dysfunction in the cloud. You're dysfunctional, <laughs> you're doing the wrong thing, but hey, you're doing the wrong thing faster, better, and cheaper. <laughs> oh, gee, geez. Uh, I'm, that was not what I was expecting applause for. <laughs> wow. But this is exactly but, but right. this is, but this is what people, but, but they're not, 
they're not clapping because it's funny. They're clapping because it's, it's true. true. Oh, it's true. It's funny, but it's true. Okay. And sometimes it has to be true to be sure. funny. Uh, but, but you do see that. You, you see mistakes being made in different technologies over and over again. Yeah. And you think it's going to be better. Is that some type? Oh. I mean, so, so we were talking about choices a while ago. Is that why plans aren't? Well, Maybe the optimal way to go. Well, or... that, it's a good. I'm because... glad that you asked that question. The you know, as an academic, the, the the joke is, what is history? It's the study. It, it's the subject nobody ever learns from. You know, <laughs> everybody <laughs> makes the same mistakes. I don't think it's a matter of of doing better planning because if there's anything that we know, you know, you know the phrase, the plans are man's, the odds are God's. You know, the the famous Eisenhower line. Plans are useless, but planning is everything. You know, the, the, the issue that I would be encourages, you know, what kind of outcomes do we want? Not how do we improve our processes? If, if, if we, what, what, what are the ways we want to improve the outcome or the customer experience or the client experience in this regard? Amazon, the lady yesterday did a terrific job on this. How do you go from, inside out from the customer experience in, instead of inside out, you have assets. How do we orchestrate our assets better to more efficiently deliver an outcome? Maybe the issue is we work from the delivery in. You know, what do we want the deliver? What what are they really expecting from that? And that's a different design sensibility. And I'm 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 going to double down on what I said earlier. What are the healthiest conversations that you have, not just within your function, but across function. And then you ask yourself, what kind of data, is that because of my personality, our personality, or because of the data that we have access to and the analytics that we're performing? What's missing? How could this conversation be better? What analysis could we do? What data could we have that would make this better? And I'll just suck up for the freight waves for a moment. You know, you think you see things like the daily, the, the trucking index, the sonar thing. Mm-hmm. To what extent will these third-party indices compilations improve our own specific use cases and circumstance? That's a bet. Mm-hmm. That's a bet. I have no idea how that bet will play out, but the odds are that more information, if taken seriously, improves the odds of getting better outcomes. It definitely does, right? The more information you have, the better the odds, as long as you're looking at choices. I I think one of the themes you come back to is is building out, not necessarily plans, but building out choices, right? Building out options, maybe optionality, is that? That's that's beautifully put. So... You know, if we, if we did a survey of the audience and, and people are getting together and they're trying to solve a problem, what percentage of the time are you said, come up with the best solution? Tell us what I should do. What, what should I do? Tell me the thing to do, as opposed to what are my three best choices? I would argue, and I do argue, that one of the most important revolutions, I'll use that word, revolutions in medicine, was not laparoscopic surgery or messenger RNA, or Operation Warp Speed. It was the creation of the second opinion. The second second opinion. opinion. We no longer gave our primary physician a monopoly over data analytics and prescription and, and, and treatment. Second opinion. Reimbursers, insurance companies insisted on this. 
I think optionality is key. Now, you can run into the circumstances. This is a true story from Royal Dutch Shell. They were one of the pioneers in scenario planning. Mm -hmm. And Royal Dutch Shell would always tell its business units to come up with three scenarios. Mm -hmm. Best case, worst case, most likely case. And of course, everybody would pick the middle case on these things because that's what yeah. human beings do. We default to it. By the way, the literature you want to look at this is on this is called behavioral economics. You know, Nudge, uh, Sunstein and Thaler, terrific, terrific stuff. It's, it's literally called choice architecture. But, but that's the, the issue, which is what kind of choices will generate, our, boost our chances of generating the kind of conversation that can lead to the right kind of outcome mm -hmm. for us so that you move away from the notion of, you know, things are going to hell in a handbasket. How do we scramble? You know, what, what should we do to who are the people I need to coordinate with and say, what are our two or three best options given these constraints? Mm -hmm. You know, is there anybody who might have access to this kind of data? Is there somebody who can call the client or the customer and say, would they be happy with this kind of an approach versus that kind of an approach? I, I am amazed and disappointed that that doesn't happen more often. And I'll go so far to say that during COVID, when I was working with organizations during COVID, you know, we saw a split. We saw some companies, the majority of companies, they tried to tread water and just make it through. We saw other companies that basically gave up. They, they hunkered down, you know, we all dealt with that. And then there were, no shock, the 15 to 20% of the companies that stepped up and tried to turn a bug mm -hmm. into a feature. They're the ones who cut a deal with DocuSign. They're the ones who tried to do everything. You know, they took advantage of chat. I'll tell you with one law firm that I worked with, not supply chain, Law firm began doing transcriptions. They got a, a transcription service. So all of the meetings were transcribed. Now, initially, this turned out to be a nightmare because at the end of the day, you would get the transcriptions of all of the meetings you were part of. Gee, thanks a lot. <laughs> um, but then they, you know, they got smart and said they had people own certain meetings. And guess what you ended up with? You ended up with things, texts, you know, natural language programming that were searchable, et cetera. And guess what? You were recording the client meetings. All of this turned into billability. You know, I would, and we, we saw this in, with some of the demos that you can, you can do text analysis, you can track the, the chats, you can be, superimpose social network analysis stuff. There are all kinds of ways of doing data capture in these environments. And some organizations under stress step up. And I think that's the real challenge. And that's where back, well, I'll end this soliloquy with your Gretzky line. That's where the puck is going. That's where, we're going to have more data and better analytics. Your phone is going to be smarter than you sometime within the next 18 to 24 months. Maybe not you individually, but a lot of, you know, many decisions. It's going to, how do you collaborate with your phone better? How do you collaborate with your laptop better? When your, when your laptop, gives you advice about sending email or text or Slack channeling mm -hmm. these people, do you follow the advice? Okay? We are already seeing this notion of the algorithm as a boss. If you're an Uber driver, if you work for in an Amazon warehouse, Amazon mentor, the algorithm is your boss. I think the real challenge going forward is what portion of the time is your data-driven algorithm going to be your boss versus your advisor versus your collaborator. That's where we're going. In some industries, 
we're already there. So what should it be? Should it be your boss, your advisor? It depends on the situation. I mean... I, please do not hiss at the use of this word. I'm a big fan of empowerment, okay? I think that, that software algorithms that make human beings feel like I'll be a vulgar, um, uh, forgive my vulgarity here. You know, it, nobody wants to be some algorithms bitch, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, so, so <laughs> I, I think that the notion of, um, you know, I, I see these wonderful ordering things, you know, do we, are we really telling the trucker what to do? Are we telling the dispatcher what to do? Is the dispatcher's boss, the, is every human being in, in your value chain basically following digital orders or are you giving them some sense of agency and empowerment? Um, you know, I'm not, believe it or not, or actually it's true, I'm not really a people person. I'm at MIT, you know, <laughs> I, my, my wife is the, is the people person in, 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 the, in the family. Now, I like people, some of my best friends are people, but I do, a better, <laughs> I do a better job on some of the digital and data side. That said, because I'm not particularly good with people, I, have, I am disproportionately sensitive to the fact that, that people do not like being told what to do because that's what, the, that's what our analytics say. You should do this, you know. I think I'll, I'll give you a... So Daryl Morey, some of you may know Daryl Morey. He was written up in one of the Michael Lewis books, The Undoing Project. He was the GM for the Houston Rockets, and now he's the GM for, for the 76ers. And he was one of the guys who brought... You, know, you had... Billy Bean speak here, mm-hmm. you know, Moneyball. Yep. Daryl was one of the guys who brought in, I know he was one of the guys who brought, you know, Moneyball stuff into the NBA. And, you know, he was at the Celtics. He worked with Danny Ainge at the Celtics. He was at Sloan. He helped set up the, the with, with Jessica Gelman, the, the sports analytics conference. I was a small, very, very small part of that. And, you know, let's, I'll, I'll say something that I hope is not too insulting, but most NBA players don't have a really good understanding of performance analytics. You know, their command of Bayes theory and frequentists, <laughs> they're, they're not, the, they didn't take those classes Probably in not. school. So, so how do you bring in analytics with this kind of NBA talent? To be sure, you have coaches, you have some mm-hmm. specialists, but how do you get people to experience that? I'll tell you what Daryl did that was, forgive my vulgar language, effing brilliant. He cut a deal with the NBA 2000 video games people so that, because NBA players like playing video games, NBA, they like playing video games. And so they could see themselves, court spacings, defenses, mm-hmm. et cetera. They could play with the performance analytic representations of stuff on the court. Gamification. I thought that was, I thought that was brilliant. And, and I think we're going to be seeing that more and more in supply chain. We're going to be seeing more gamification, simulation, modeling. So people say, what if? What if all that sunflower oil in, in Ukraine is not available anymore? What do we do? Mm-hmm. How do we scramble? Who do, who do we form communities with? What's, what are the two best substitutes for sunflower oil? Is there... Are, what sunflower oil intensive product could be redefined or reimagined if we used X. Gee, all of a sudden the supply chain people aren't supply chain people anymore. They're collaborative designers 
for next generation or just-in-time products, services, experience. I think that's huge. I think that's huge. I do too. I mean, it's, again, it's all about optionality. Exactly you, you, right. You have to have your options. If, if you only have one option, you're screwed. And, and, and so let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that phrase optionality wasn't a bigger part of what we heard yesterday and some of the products, excellent products demoed? Is, is it because there's the disease of the optimal answer that people don't think in terms of optionality or that it's a secondary priority? Mr. X Freight Brokerage on this. <laughs> I, I, I think it is. Everyone's looking for the optimal answer. But I think the what-if scenarios, the optionality, gets very complicated very quickly with an industry as big as, a, as what we'll call the supply chain, right? Even in transportation logistics, the variables that interplay can bog you down maybe. Or maybe that's just the mentality. So, so, so here's the hypo hypothetical I'd like to propose. If a Walmart or a P&G or a major you know, global supply chain company basically starts telling its suppliers, we want you to collaborate. Here's a scenario. How would you recommend we best cope, because you're going to be doing it with this scenario? We'll go back to Ukraine. We've clearly got the China scenario. How should we do this? Would, would there be pushback? Do we have the tools that allow this kind of modeling and simulation? And, you know, yes, hiss at this word. We create a metaverse emulation or simulation of a global supply chain. Because, again, I think these... Th I'm biased. I'm at MIT. I think these things are obvious. I'm just a little surprised we're not hearing more about it, particularly because every single presentation we've heard has talked about the volatility, the uncertainty, mm -hmm. the VUCA environment that the supply chain manager is forced to confront. I will say this, everyone should be talking about optionality with the volatility and, and the variables involved in a supply chain. It is important. And you brought up the example we've been talking about it is collaboration outside. Right. And the easiest way to do that is right. to have a Walmart, a large, a large customer say, you must collaborate. I, I think that's the, the, the easiest thing but, but, and the most straightforward. Um, but I, I just want to connect that to the architecture word mm -hmm. because we heard a number of organizations talk about their solutions, but we also heard a number of organizations talk about platforms and architecting platforms. I think one of the best ways to facilitate and enable collaboration is to have the right kind of platform architecture, to have those APIs, mm -hmm. to have those SDKs, the software developer kits, that allow your users to contribute and add value. One of my colleagues at BU, Marshall Van Alstein, yes, I know that sounds like a Marvel comic villain name, had one of the best def definitions of network effects that I've ever heard, and I, I, I shamelessly use it, but I do attribute. He says, users creating value for other users. I think one of the biases supply chain people have is how can suppliers add more value to manufacturers, to consumers, to customers, to clients. But if you look at successful platform architectures, GitHub, Alibaba, what you see are users throughout the value chain creating value for other users. 
And when you have users creating value for other users and the data to track and analyze that, what are you doing? You're identifying opportunities for optionality. The optionality, you're generating options rather than constraining options. So that's why I think platform architectures on some dimensions are more important than quote unquote solutions architectures. I think that's going to be one of the great debates going forward if I'm running a supply chain. I think one of the challenging issues if, you're, if I'm running a global supply chain is, does it make more sense for me to invest in an optimal solution, optionality, yep. or a platform that generates lots of data, lots of analytics that can generate serendipitous, lucky options for me. I think that's an issue that as we all move into the digital space, I think that question, and we were forced into it by COVID, now the issue is, do we, quote unquote, get back to normal, or are certain organizations going to hit the accelerator? Real quick before we end this. Yeah. On a scale of one to 10, how bullish are you on technology and the space, supply chain, what you've seen here today? Based on what I've heard, as an investment, I'm bullish eight or nine on, on, on this. I'm, I, I'm very impressed by, by, by what I'm seeing. What I'm concerned about is further fragmentation, which is that the rich get richer, the mediocre get more mediocre, and the poor just disappear. And that's why I'm impressed by the people who are here, because clearly they're predisposed to hang around. They definitely so. are. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you very much. Big round of applause Pleasure. for Michael Strange. Thank you very much. That's a pleasure.